Did Paul actually believe that women are inferior to men? And are Christian women today expected to wear head coverings? And if they don't, is that a sign of ungodliness or rebellion or disrespect? Well, on today's podcast, we're going to be tackling these controversial questions. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and let's get into it. Well, hey there, my friends. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you guys, as always. Blessed to be with you guys as we now enter into this phase in 1 Corinthians 11 with a very controversial passage about headship and head coverings. So I want you guys to know ahead of time that this particular portion of Scripture gets a lot of abuse out there. Perhaps maybe you have been under a pastor who maybe was misogynistic or they use this passage or a man uses this passage in, in a way to not only belittle but to demean women. And perhaps maybe you're a woman, you're listening and, and you're on edge a little bit because you have seen this passage be abused and it's caused maybe some confusion or or, or heartache uh, or you've gone through a bad experience. Whatever the case may be, I want you guys to know that as we dive in, I'm very sensitive and understanding with a wide range of listeners, faithful, amazing listeners, just like you guys, that there's a lot of experiences that we have coming to the text a lot of the times. And so what we want to do here at Stand Strong in the Word is, is we want to ensure that we are properly with the purity of the text, taking what is going on here and to interpret it according to the direction and illumination of the Holy Spirit, as best as I can as a fallible human being. But I believe in the infallibility of Scripture. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe in the superiority of Scripture. I believe that the Word of God cannot be broken, like Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 35. And I believe here, right out the gate, that Paul is not misogynistic. He is not demeaning women. He is not putting men above them. Matter of fact, we're going to see the opposite of that. And so I just hope that you guys, whatever your backstory is, whatever your predilections are, whatever your presuppositional ideas are, I encourage you guys as we look at it to hear God's word and let's work through this because when you actually see the main principle at hand here, it's a beautiful thing of showing not only the unity of the Godhead, but how we as men and women, particularly as husband and wife, reflect that unity and being being submissive one to another in the fear of the Lord. So let's dive right in. And let's pick things up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, where he says, Now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers or covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as man was made from 
from, excuse me, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair as it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So let's just jump right in and let's understand from the previous section where we left things off in podcast 245 in chapter 10, verses 23 to chapter 11, verse one, Paul brought clarity. Remember what he was dealing with? The Corinthians, the Christians, the newfound Christians, they were dealing with meat that was offered to idols and making sure that they're being above reproach. And remember what Paul said in verses 23 to 24 in the previous passage, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So though there's freedom, they're not always gonna be helpful. Though there's freedom, they're not always gonna build up. And that's what he says in verse 24, we have to make sure that we're not seeking our own good, but the good of others. So as we have freedom as Christians, we have to ensure how we're conducting ourselves. So that same guidance that Paul was laying out when it came to meat that was being offered to idols and how we are to engage people that are not Christian and pagan uh, worship at the feast, et cetera. We're gonna be seeing that actually at the Lord's table after this particular passage next week and to, you know, in the next week podcast. But right now we're still seeing this principle being guided when it comes to these traditions that he's conveyed to them. And, and it has to deal with this word head and also head coverings. And that's what we're going to be seeing here in verses two through 16. And, and, and Paul, I have to make a point here. He's giving advice. Okay. And, and that's very important for us to understand. So remember that the guiding principle is how we honor God in all that we do that we don't abuse our freedoms and how we treat others, okay? So if I love God, the first greatest commandment, and the second is likened unto the first and loving others, okay? And so that's how we're gonna apply that guiding principle that is immutable to a cultural context today where Paul's giving advice in that current climate. Now, this time the issue, again, is revolving around women and wearing head coverings. And, and before he deals with the customary fashion, he's gonna be dealing with the context of, of the structure of man and woman in marriage, okay? And the roles that they play in creation. And so Paul's intention is to rectify the misuse of freedoms, just like he was dealing with in the previous uh, passage of, you know, not just in chapter 10, but also in chapter eight and nine. So if you need to brush up on that, I encourage you maybe to pause this, this, this episode and go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, okay? So this issue, again, is revolving around women and head coverings, and he wants to, you know, address some of the misuse of freedoms that's leading to division and inappropriate behavior. And every time in these passages that we're talking about is about conduct, about witness, about behavior, about being above reproach and not causing division, but being united. And so Paul's primary concern that we have to understand right out the gate is that he's not just generalizing this issue of just talking about men and women in general. No, he's actually gonna be directing the attention primarily, and this is important for us to understand, with the testimony of a husband and a wife who faithfully live out their marriage before God. 
and as they come to church and as they live in society. So when Paul right off the bat talks about these traditions, he's probably referring to some of the things that he had mentioned to them previously. And this is what's interesting because this is 1 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians. And so he's talking about some other teaching that he had conveyed to them. And so in many cases, uh, a lot of New Testament scholars believe that there were other writings that we have of Paul, that we don't have, I should say, of Paul, but they did and somehow got lost. Now, clearly, um, this is what the Holy Spirit wanted to be put into the, the, the canon of scripture, okay? So when he says about, you know, the head of every man is Christ and the head of wife is husband and then the head of Christ is God, we have to make sure that as we encounter these controversial matters, dealing with this material where it clearly means, it, it, it clearly looks like it's saying the head of wife is her husband. So so basically saying, saying if you just, on the face of it, just read it, 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 it kind of seems like Christ isn't God because he's under the father. And two, that the wife is under her husband. Therefore, men are superior. That on the face of it, that's what it looks like, but it's not the case at all. So let's unpack this, okay? This is regarding the role of men and women in marriage. Okay, and so we got to keep that in mind. So this word head is kephale, and it refers to two things. It refers to authority and also source or origination. So source or origination. And what's it, it, when you look at the text, it's possible to look at it where there is that double meaning, but it, in no way, shape, or form with the Greek term that Paul uses here is denoting anything about the qualitative differences um, about men and women as though their, their, their differences are implying that men are better. No, it's only speaking to responsibility and function. So for example, the son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, he's begotten by the father. What that means is that he's eternally generated. He wasn't created. The Godhead are co-equal. Each member of the Trinity, of the triune Godhead, they have different functions when it comes to their role in the economy of salvation. So in creation, okay? Not one to another because they're co-equal. There's not division between the Godhead. There's unity, perfect unity. And so what Paul's talking about is that just as there is a role, so when the son is submissive, when he subjugates himself to the father, that's in the economy of salvation, the role that he's playing. Does it not mean that he's less in essence? And likewise, when he's talking about the, that Christ is a source of man, that we go back in Genesis chapter two, verses four through nine, woman, when God saw man and everything was good, but it wasn't good that man was alone. And so he created woman from his side in Genesis two, 18 through 23. So woman came from man. Man had nothing to do with this, <laughs> okay? Man had nothing to do with this. This is all God's order in creation. And it's a beautiful symbolism of the two coming side by side, they're equals, Galatians 3.28. We'll talk about that in a minute. So that is what we have to understand. So Paul's use of the word head is not implying that a woman is ontologically inferior to man. Let's just get that straight. That is not in, in the Jewish teaching here from the Old Testament we see from creation and clearly marked out here in 1 Corinthians 11 with Paul. The husband is charged by God in his position and functionality as the primary leader and protector of his family. So when you look at Ephesians 5.23, later in one of Paul's other letters, he, he says this, that husbands, 
They are the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, which is his body of which he is the savior. That is not saying the husband is a savior. Christ is a savior. So if we remember though, prior to verse 23 in, in Ephesians 5, verse 21 says, submitting one to another in the fear of the Lord. So a husband's leadership role is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That is unconditional sacrificial love. And the Bible says that Christ gave himself up for the church. So that's what men are to do. Men, when we lead, we are servant leaders. We're not saying I'm the boss, I'm in charge. You have to listen to what I say. False. That is absolutely false. So when we are loving our spouse and the wife, husbands, listen, and the wife voluntarily is submitting to the husband as unto the Lord. When you look in Colossians chapter three, so ultimately she's saying, listen, this is God's order. And when, when it's being conducted, when the structure and the manner, which it's being done is according to what scripture mandates, it's a beautiful thing. And just as each member of the Godhead has a role and we as image bearers of God, we're reflecting that unity as we fulfill our roles. So this isn't I'm in charge. I do whatever I want. No, Christ is our leader. He's not just the head of the church, Ephesians 1, 18. He is the head of everything, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. So when, when we're seeing the, the submissiveness in the economy of salvation with the roles in which the Godhead play, the triune Godhead, there's a subsistence, but of the same substance, Okay. They may be functionally diverse, but they're not divided in their operational roles. So we may be distinct, meaning husband and wife distinct in our anatomy and, and also in, in aspects of our functionality, meaning we are one gender and they are another as a man and a woman, two different sexes, but we are united as one. We make up humanity and as a collective, particularly when you're looking at a husband and wife, that's oneness. So one commentary said, in the incarnation, the son submits to the father while still being equal in essence and value. The son is not inferior because he submits to the father. Similarly, a wife who submits to her husband is still equal in essence and value. A wife is not inferior because she admits to her husband. So when we're talking about submission, it has nothing to do with a woman is inferior. It has everything to do with finding protection and guidance and love and leadership with the husband. Okay, now when he says every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Okay, what on earth is this? Now, obviously we're in the West. It, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast and you are, you live in the West, culturally, even in, in most of Europe, we're not talking about the Middle East or even parts of South Africa. But back then the Roman men, when they worshiped their pagan gods, guess what they would do? They would pull uh, the loose ends of their toga over their heads. And another practice um, that we see that the, that the Corinthian men were getting out of when they came to faith in Christ was not taking in, you know, certain practices that did it, that they did with their pagan gods and just apply it to Jesus. And this was another one. Okay. He didn't want them to incorporate that into their worship. And not only that, but if a Christian man placed a toga over his head, remember a Christian man who may be Greek in this case, okay. A, a Corinthian. If he did this during the service, he was basically signaling in that culture that he was a he was a he was a high member of society. 
And the reason why Paul says that this action is dishonorable is again, because if you're bragging, you're not, you're not focusing on Jesus. If you're seeking special treatment in the church, you're not focusing on Jesus. And, and, and the point that Paul is making then as the same principle applies today is we are not, when we come to church to draw attention to ourselves, we are to focus on Christ. Who's the head of the church. Now, here in verse five, when a woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. All right. So Paul now deals specifically with the misconduct of some women, particularly wives during worship. The New King James Chronological Study Bible describes how this conflict over customs disrupted church unity. Quote, Upper class women were especially prone to showing off their hairstyles, requiring them to keep their heads uncovered because the Corinthian churches met in well-to-do members' homes. Affluent and poorer women came into contact with one another, producing a clash of different views concerning covering their heads. To one group, uncovered heads represented progressive freedom. To the other, ostentation and seduction, end quote. So you can see... In their custom at the time with with the two different ethnic groups, the two different styles of worship coming to a head. But I want to also uh, draw attention to Paul talking about wife who prays or prophesies. Now notice Paul is affirming the ministry of a wife through prayer and, and prophecies. And if you go back in Jewish history, God oftentimes raised a women to prophesy and to give counsel and direction and leadership to his people. If you look at Exodus 15, verse 20, look at Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. In Judges 4, verse 4, the, 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 the historic and heroic leader and judge, Deborah. In 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 14, Huldah. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3, Isaiah the prophet actually lists some unknown prophetesses. Now, Greeks, on the other hand, remember, they they allowed women to speak on behalf of a deity, okay, in their culture, but they refused them the right to speak in public to men about it. So again, you have to keep this in mind because Paul's dealing with this and, and we don't have the list of questions that they were asking him. So I think that would help to some degree to look at the specificity of how they were posing these questions before Paul. All we have is his responses. Now, the other thing he mentions here is, is talking about how she dishonors her head. So again, was she being disrespectful or rude? Well, again, let's look in Paul's day. It was customary for women in the ancient Mediterranean to cover their heads. They did this in public and they all oftentimes did this among strangers. If you go back in Genesis 24, where we see the customs coming out in Genesis throughout now here, even with the Jewish women in 1 Corinthians. In Genesis 24, 65, Rebecca veiled herself in the presence of Isaac. So when you look in the, in the, in the customary fashions or the social structures in Mesopotamia, you see women covering their head. You also see some women covering their face. You actually see this practice very common in Judea and Tarsus. Remember, Paul, Saul, at the you know prior to him coming to Christ, was you know he came from Tarsus. So, what was the primary reason for women in that culture at that time to cover their head? It was modesty. 
It was an act of submission to God. And in, in, and in this case, again, we're talking specifically about married women because they were being respectful to their husbands. So the ESV study Bible, they add a bit of clarity here. Quote, in Corinth, a married woman who uncovered her head in public would have brought shame to her husband. The action may have suggested sexual availability or implied that she was unmarried. In cultures where head coverings are not a sign of being married, wives could obey this command by wearing some other physical symbol of being married, such as a wedding ring, end quote. Now, here's another thing that we have to understand. If a woman took off her head covering, her veil or her scarf in that day during the worship service, it could be a sign that or a, a, a suggestion, right? So she was, you know, putting herself out there that she has been withdrawn from her husband and she was available, basically saying, I am looking for another one to provide for me. So this is why this was very important in that, in that, in that uh, culture, in that environment, that if a woman was praying, a godly woman, and she was prophesying and God's using her and she's coming to the worship service and she's not drawing attention to herself, she would place a veil over her head to avoid people thinking several things. One, that she was abusing her freedom. Two, that she was rejecting the honor of God. And three, that she was disrespecting her husband by making a public gesture that she was promiscuous. So what Paul was doing here in addressing these things was attempting to combat against the acceptable lifestyle of promiscuity that was very rampant in the, in the Roman culture. And so he's reminding husbands and wives to, again, with their freedoms they have in Christ, that again, we're not to be bogged down by customs, but it's appropriate for us to not abuse those things and give people the wrong impression and cause division and cause people to stumble. So now when he addresses this whole thing about a woman covering her head, or if she doesn't, then she should, she should you know, shave her head off or her hair off. Um, and it, you know, but then he says, that's a disgrace. It kind of seems like Paul's like, what are you trying to say, Paul? You're, you're not making sense. You're saying one thing, you're saying another thing. This is what he was, this is what he's getting at. It was not customary for Corinthian women to cover their heads, okay? It was for Jewish women. Now, in ancient Mediterranean, there's another thing we have to understand. If they, if a Jewish woman revealed her long hair in public, she was either mourning or she was caught in adultery or was accused of it, okay? So it was a way to shame her. So beware of this woman. If it was a Jewish woman, she's wearing long hair. If she was not in mourning, then the other explanation would be, be you know, don't don't uh, interact with her because she's an adulteress. Okay. Now, not only that, but again, if if Corinthian women were not customarily wearing coverings, we also have to understand why does he bring up this whole issue of shaved uh, hair? Well, the Corinthian women who were prostitutes at the temple, they had shaved heads. And the reason why was, was because they stood out to, to people in the culture of, of what they represented to what deities and that they were available for people to partake in sexual activity and honor to their, their, their pagan gods. And so again, Paul's advising, he's giving wise counsel here to a godly woman to not go to church with her head, you know, with her hair exposed and neither to shave it. And we have to understand that in this, in this case, that there's a difference between what is absolute and what is culturally relative. So this clearly doesn't apply today. 
Just like when the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, I'm from the West. I'm from the United States. We shake hands. We, you know, kind of hug, side hugs, whatever, right? Fist pump, you know, so that's greeting one another. So the, again, culturally, we all greet one another, but to what degree? Lifting up holy hands is not an essential aspect of public prayer, uh, but we see Paul mentioning that in 1 Timothy 2, 8. So different cultures are, they, they express themselves before God in worship differently. So it's the principle of honoring and worshiping God, right? In fear and reverence. But how we go about doing that will vary depending on the culture. So that is so important for us to understand that in some cultures, again, they kiss, other cultures give a handshake. And so what we can't dismiss is the principle behind the practice of wearing a veil. In that culture, it was teaching um, modesty, submission to God in within the marriage and not to conduct yourself in a dishonorable way. So that's important for us to understand. So now knowing that when we get into verse seven, when it says, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image of the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So this is another controversial thing that that man was not made from woman, but woman for man. And this is another thing that, again, the feministic you know, movements, they can use this to try to say Paul's a chauvinist pig, he's misogynistic, et cetera, et cetera. Well, let's understand what Paul's saying here in verses seven through eight, because what he's doing again is we're looking at the structure of marriage before and the unity reflecting the triune Godhead. Here, what he's dealing with is 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 uh, the appeal to the order of creation. The word glory, remember in 1 Corinthians 10, going back to that with the guiding principle here, that we are to do all things for the glory of God. Well, guess what? We as human beings, male and female, we represent the glory of God. We represent the excellence and splendor of God. And the men in the world made in the image of God, as women in the world are made in the image of God, Men represent the authority of God for he was created first and was given the responsibility as an overseer, as a representative in creation. Matter of fact, if you look at Psalm chapter eight, it says you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So as such, the husband is placed in a headship role of his home. His duty is to love, is to care and to protect his wife and his children. So this phrase glory of man, this was Paul's way of stating that a wife is a suitable companion. She is a wise, godly helper, advisor. Matter of fact, the word submission in Ephesians 5, going back to that reference, when it says wives submit to your husbands. Now remember, it says that after what husbands are supposed to do, they're to represent Christ. They're to have unconditional love. They are to love their wives. They are to care unconditionally with the word agape there, not however they feel or when they feel like it. It's not relative. It's a, it's a command that men are given. And, he, and Christ demonstrated it sacrificially. He just didn't talk about love. He laid down his life. And he says, no, no one loves you guys more than me. And that's what a husband's supposed to say to his wife. No one loves you. No one will take care of you the way I will. That is my duty. I'm duty bound to God. So as the glory of man, the woman is the helper. She is an advisor. So the word submit in Ephesians 5 is to find shelter, to find companionship. 
And it also carries the idea, it's a military term. She is a, not a second class citizen. She is a, she is a senior advisor. And that's why the Bible says in Proverbs 18, 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. It doesn't say that about men. Why? Because a godly wife is one of the wisest and purest models of faith on earth. It was not good for man to be alone. If man was ultimately going to be an effective leader and representation of God and a representative in creation, he needed the support of women. Okay? Period. That's a beautiful thing. That doesn't mean that women can't be in leadership or anything like that. So when he says man was not made from woman, he isn't arguing again that man is superior. He is merely referring to the order of creation. The theological study Bible says this is how they condense it. God created the woman from man chronologically in that, in that priority in for man, meaning in function allocation. So when you see that Eve was taken from the side of, Ad, of Adam, that was completing humanity. And together, it's, it's talking about them advancing human flourishing. So that's what he's talking about, marriage and procreation. Not about, again, ontologically inferior or superior one to the other. Then he says, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Again, he's not demeaning women. This is specifying the need that man has for a woman. Man was not complete without a wife to share in his responsibilities over creation. And if you are married out there and you have a godly marriage, you get it. You totally see this. And that's why when the Bible says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were, they were not ashamed. And Jesus repeats this very thing in Matthew 19. It's a beautiful thing. The man is to leave and to, to cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. So when it says now that, that a wife ought to have a symbol of authority and it talks about these you know, these angels, like what on earth is, so one, we see the symbol of glory. Now we see the symbol of authority. And again, this is so important in the context of what we're talking about, because it's not being dismissive or demeaning women. It's actually recognizing just as it talked about women praying and prophesying, but to make sure that it's done in modesty, just like with men, not to wear a covering because then you're bragging about your position. Don't abuse your authority. And likewise here, women have power. This is recognizing a woman's power. Again, this is not man power and woman power. This is, this is pointing to submission to God by being culturally appropriate. A suggested translation renders it this way, quote, for this reason, a wife should exercise control over her head, i.e. keep the appropriate covering on. So meaning that a woman's responsibility is to be above reproach, just like it is for a man, especially if we're married the way in which we conduct ourselves. And I love this because he says, because of the angels. Now, there's a lot of discussion. And to be honest, I'm going to share what my interpretation to some degree is by using three different passages of scripture. And I'm not saying this is proven, okay, that this is the best interpretation because I really don't know what he means. The only thing I, I can do is, again, look throughout scripture and say, where else is there a mentioning of angels that kind of maybe speak to the role in men and women's lives and in ministry and in the church? Well, one is in Hebrews 1.14, we're told 
that angels are sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So we do know, according to scripture, that angels play a role. They're known as ministering spirits. So maybe perhaps that is applicable here. When women are living a life of, of modesty and they're living out their authority that is appropriate, they will have angels who will support them in God's work. I do believe in that, no question. Perhaps also Paul mentions angels here because they are present among the church as stated earlier in chapter six, verse three, where Christians are even to judge angels. We're actually even told in first Timothy five twenty one when he was talking about rebuking an elder in public because of their sin, he charges the church not to dismiss this. Why? Because he says in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. Once again, talking about church affairs, just like he's talking about here in first Corinthians 11, angels are involved. They're ministering spirits. They have a role and a responsibility given by God, just like we have a role and responsibility in his church. Ephesians 3.10, Paul affirms, quote, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I believe the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are referring to angels. So the mighty angels were even told in 1 Peter chapter 1 to throw an extra passage in there that they're even learning the works of salvation. Okay, so when they're seeing us worship, when they're seeing our activities and ministering in, in the name of Jesus, there's curiosity there with angels, okay? And so certainly I think that there's curiosity that the angels have because of their involvement by God in our lives to guide us and to protect us, okay? In Matthew 18, another passage I can throw in there where, you know, we, this whole debate about do we have guarding angels, okay? So I do think that that's what he's probably getting at. I don't know for sure, but when you look at other passages of scripture, it kind of makes sense of their involvement in church affairs, then he says here in verse 11 that in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. Now, this is important as we keep this in context of scripture. This passage, again, is, is widely been misused and there's double standards and we have to be careful. The first thing we have to recognize, again, is that men and women are created in the image of God. They share in, catch this, ontological equality. That's why when I mentioned earlier, Galatians 3.28 there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we have to keep that in mind. Again, he's not saying that sex doesn't matter. God made us either male or female. What he's saying is that one is not greater than the other. The other thing we have to understand in this context is that men are not superior as though they have been given a special status because one of the things that Paul refutes Throughout this particular passage, clearly in the next portion of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 11, is that you're not to use your social status. You're not to say you're elite and you're better. What is one of the things that thing? What one of the things that Jesus rebuked the most in Scripture was the Pharisees, the religious fanatics, the elites, and and so he there's no room for this in Paul's teaching. Men have no right to mistreat or devalue women. He's talking about equality in the sight of the Lord. And that's what we have to exercise, the love and respect in marriage. We're not to be independent. We are one. So don't use your position, okay, as a man or a woman, as a husband or a wife, and, and think that you don't need your spouse. That is absolutely wrong. So when he says, judge for yourselves, is it proper, proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace, but then the woman's hair is her glory? 
So the final point, this whole thing is I wrap things up. And I hope that this has really been making sense to a lot of you guys. Here's the final point of Paul. And it is this, the woman is different than the man and the man is different than the woman. And in that culture, even a lot of what we see today, women have long hair and women, you know, use more products. They, their haircuts are a lot more expensive because it takes a lot of upkeep for a woman. And in that culture, it was the same. So when we embrace the differences among the two sexes, it speaks to the order and design of God's creation as well as to the unique qualities that is possessed in a man and in also in a woman. And so when a woman though, tries to become more like a man or a man becomes more like a woman, again, this, this is disgraceful. That's what he's, that's what Paul's getting at here. A, a unique quality, okay, is long hair for a woman. Matter of fact, in, in that culture and a lot of ancient texts, when referring to a woman, um, her long hair was a natural veil and did act as a natural veil and it symbolizes the crown of her beauty. And even still today in different cultures, you know, when a woman's hair is all done up, you know, a lot of times it's the focus of that. And, and that's one of the things is because God has given them long hair um, to dis, is, as one way to distinguish from a man. So the actions of a man with long hair now, the opposite in the first century Rome was seen as a disgrace because he would, he would be regarded as effeminate. And, it's, and then that is not, the, that is not to be the case when you're to be a warrior, right? Now, remember he's dealing with this culture. He's not dealing with the Spartans with, with they're known to, to have long hair, not all of them, but he's particularly focusing on the Corinthians in a Roman culture, Okay. So we know that a woman's natural long hair acted as her own covering and wearing a shawl was customary. It was not a command. So then he ends here saying that, you know, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So the instructions that Paul was given here about head coverings and about the, the, the divine order that's being given to man and woman with a structure of marriage he was not in any way, shape, or form compromising on those things, nor was he trying to reduce the unrest among the Jews and the Greeks that were attending a church service. There's no doubt a lot of controversy because there's a mixed crowd and there's a mixed bag of ideas. And so Paul principally was arguing for these individuals to make sure when they were partaking in corporate worship that they were united. And that was a reflection of, of the triune Godhead. Not only that, but as you gather together as, as not just a mixed bag of ideas, but also with different genders, different sexes, male and female, and different customs and, you know, wearing head coverings, not wearing head coverings, all this kind of stuff, getting it, drawing attention to yourselves, not drawing attention to yourselves, giving the wrong impression, even though you didn't mean to. He's making sure that we focus on the order of God's creation, that women are not living a life of disrespect but it first starts with the men. That's why he starts in verse three and four. Husbands are to lead their families. And so sometimes we can get into these particulars and there's a time and a place for that, but we cannot be dismissive of the main principle at hand. And so it was Paul's way of talking to married couples to be equal. They are distinct, yes, no question in their sex and their physical appearance, but they are one. So let's not, let's not lose that unity for relativistic things. 
And so I pray the same for us. I pray that even though our culture or whatever culture you live in may vary culture to culture and different times throughout church history, they did different things. Those are not mandates that we're required to do in our salvation, but the principle is not, is, is not something we are to dismiss. And it has to deal with what God is talking about, glorifying him and not abusing our freedoms in the order of creation. And so I hope that makes sense. You guys talking about headship and talking about head coverings. And I do pray that as we conclude this episode, that this has encouraged you in your relationships with people around you. If you're a husband and you're not loving your wife the way you should, I pray you'd repent right now and you allow the Holy Spirit to move in your life and to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Find godly men in your life to hold you accountable. If you don't have that right now, pray. You're listening to this podcast right now, that's a start and good for you. If you're a wife and you're finding yourself that maybe some of the things you're doing is giving people the wrong impression, you need to repent and find godly women. Follow Titus chapter two model for men and women that we need to seek out godly people who are older than us, not just in, in age, but in maturity and spiritual maturity to help guide us as we are to live a life that is pleasing and honorable to the Lord, that we are to glorify him, my friends, in all things. So thank you guys for listening. Until next time, keep standing strong in the word of God. Music.